Join me. You may be able to help solve a mystery. Greetings. Hello. Hello. Welcome to another episode of You Solved a Mystery, a podcast where we delve into segments of unsolved mysteries that have been solved and reveal the final chapter. I'm Athena. And I'm Chandra. And if we sound exactly the same, it's because we're twins. Before we get into the story today, I have to mention, and by the time this airs, it'll be kind of old news, but uh, the Sumter County does have been identified. The Sumter County does were featured on a January 20th, 1995 episode of Unsolved Mysteries. And the story in brief is that on August 9th, 1976, the bodies of two young people were found shot to death in Sumter County, South Carolina. And for years and years and years, their identities have been unknown. But on January 21st, 2021, police announced that the DNA Doe Project used DNA to identify the man formerly called Jock Doe as James Frund, 30, from Pennsylvania, and the woman, formerly a Jane Doe, as Pamela May Buckley, 25, from Minnesota. So police are continuing to withhold some information, presumably to help identify whether a suspect is good or not, because they say that they do have some suspects, or at least a suspect, um, but they've let the families know, and again, this is, this is a couple months ago at this point. I was so excited when I first heard about this. You told me about it, and I just, it's amazing, and I really hope that those families can get some closure soon. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll be keeping an eye out for updates because my goal with this podcast is to start from the beginning of the episodes and work my way through. But it's exciting to see a mystery unfold and become solved in real time. So if they do solve this one, I might just jump ahead and cover it. I just don't like when things aren't solved. Yeah, we like stories with an answer. And that's what this podcast is about. It's about the answers. Because... We don't like the mysteries. No, we don't. We do like mystery novels, though. But you do get the answer. True. Poirot always finds the villain. That's true. He uses the little gray cells. The little gray cells. <laughs> <laughs> One more note before I get into the story. There happens to be a thunderstorm. So I don't know if that'll come through the audio. If it does, enjoy. Hopefully it only comes in at the right time to punctuate something dramatic. That would be fantastic. There's also a, a cat trying to get into the closet where we're recording. So there might be some meowing. He's throwing a bit of a drama fit outside the door. <laughs> <laughs> but he's okay. <laughs> He'll be fine. He'll be fine. <laughs> Today I have another story. From the second ever special of Unsolved Mysteries, hosted by Mladen Sokolvich, or Carl Malden, as he became known in Hollywood, which aired May 25th, 1987, Chandra discovered for us that it was reworked into Season 8, Episode 21, with Dennis Farina. So it is out there to be viewed, just not in its original form. Yeah, they uh, have audio for the reenactments now, and it's a bit dramatic at times. It borderlines on cheesy. Yeah. 
And they used more of the original reenactments that were filmed. They used less, I think, in the original. Hmm. This story features a tale as old as time. A story we hear over and over, where Prince Charming turns out to be a beast. And I want to throw out there a content warning for intimate partner violence and sexual assault. So you can do whatever you need to to take care of yourself. In 1969, a high school custodian fell in love with Eleanor Farver, a 45-year-old woman with six children. A year later, he murdered her. Eighteen years later, at the time of the broadcast, he had never been found. John Burns moved to South Lyon, Michigan, in 1947. There were only two pictures in existence of the man. Neighbors said he was private, careful about what he said, and he told people he was from many different places, including Altoona, Pennsylvania, Cheyenne, Wyoming. He said he was one-half Osage Indian from Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, and from Colorado. The interviews with his neighbors are basically like, he was a quiet man. Mm -hmm. Basically that classic cliche of someone who is going to become a murderer. (laughs) I don't know. I'm a kind of a quiet person. (laughs) (laughs) At the time the segment was filmed, Detective Bill Eskridge was the investigator on the case, but the fact was they didn't know where he was from, when he was born, or even if he was born in the United States. In South Lyon, Burns married Anna Murray, a woman who appeared to be 20 years his senior, though I'm not sure 20 years is exactly accurate, and they were married 20 years before he started seeing Eleanor, who lived 15 miles away in Washtenaw County and had no idea he was married. The thing about his relationship with Anna Murray is that they were married for 20 years, which is a very long time to be married, and Um, One of the detectives, I think, suggested that maybe he had married her to try to cover his identity, in which case, you know, he might need to sort of stick it out. But just 20 years. Mm -hmm. It's a long time to be with somebody. And you gotta feel bad for Anna. Yeah. Just, it, it really, it makes me wonder to what extent they were actually in love, if at all, and... Maybe at some point it turned into her just putting up with his shit because it would be too much of a pain to get a divorce. I don't know. It's just maybe he was using her, but it was a long relationship. Yeah. At first, Burns treated Eleanor well, and it was a welcome change for a woman who had seen many hardships. Eleanor was living in a converted schoolhouse, which... On its surface, doesn't seem strictly like a hardship. It sounds kind of awesome. But the circumstances that brought her family to live there were traumatic. Eleanor was twice divorced. Her first husband had simply disappeared. So did she manage to get a divorce from someone who disappeared? I couldn't find any additional information. I couldn't even find the names of her first two husbands. Hmm. But I kind of assumed she had him declared dead. Or, or maybe she did get a divorce, or maybe he didn't so much disappear as left her, and then from a distance they got a divorce. I don't have any more details, unfortunately. Well, you should definitely be able to divorce somebody who 
up in poofs. Yeah. Somehow. Eleanor's second husband had burned their home down, which was what forced them to find alternative shelter. So to put it lightly, Eleanor had been unlucky in love. John Burns bought the kids a pony. Eleanor loved animals and dreamed of having a farm, according to her daughter-in-law, Melody Taylor. She especially loved chickens. Which is my favorite fact about her. It's so freaking cute. Mm -hmm. For the first time in a long time, Eleanor was happy, and Melody said it was good to see her happy again after so long. She and Burns started planning to get married and buy a chicken ranch. Five months before the murder, Burns had stopped by his house with Eleanor, and she saw Anna. He told her she was his aunt and hard to get along with, so Eleanor should wait in the car. Sometime later, Eleanor decided to go to his house and return some things she had been borrowing, and Melody thinks that she was also curious about this woman and saw an opportunity to meet her, which is fair. Yes. She's about to marry into this family. Yeah. She wants to see if she can get along with this woman. Yeah. So she approached Anna and introduced herself as John's fiance. And Anna, who is probably aware of the affair because apparently it was common knowledge in Burns's part of town, and feeling totally done with Burns's bullshit, she laughed and revealed that she was his wife. Eleanor was devastated and swore to never see John again. And that's when the harassment, stalking, and threats began. John would come to the house and bang on the door, demanding the chance to explain. He wrote, quote, violent letters that he slipped under her door at night. He put sugar in her gas tank and tried to run her off the road twice. He even showed up one day holding what looked like a stick of dynamite and threatened to blow up her house. Melody was there that day and said he, quote, had something in his hand that looked like dynamite. He started threatening, swearing at us, saying he was going to blow us all to hell, end quote. Remember, Eleanor has six children, some adult and some still young, and she frequently has grandchildren and other family visiting, so this had to be terrifying. They went to the police, but they said there was little they could do. As Melody put it, to the police, it was just a lover's quarrel. Garbage. Mm-hmm. And you can tell when Melody is talking to the interviewers that this is still so sad for her. Mm -hmm. It still weighs so heavily on her heart. Mm -hmm. Bud Martin was a hardware store owner, and he was interviewed for the episode. He explained how Burns came in and said there was a German shepherd bothering him that he wanted to shoot. No. Don't shoot dogs. With Eleanor's love for animals, you have to wonder how that worked. He wants to kill a dog and she loves animals. You don't just go shoot dogs. Well, he also wasn't actually planning to shoot a dog. You make a good point. <laughs> you probably never <laughs> talked to her about, oh dear. Oh dear. <laughs> about shooting it because they were not speaking at that point. Um, Oof. Um, point A, don't shoot dogs, you piece of crap. Point B... Don't be garbage. <laughs> Just don't. Just stop it. Sadly, <laughs> seems easier said than done. 
Burns wanted advice from Bud on which gun and shells would kill it. Not just wound it or scare it off, but kill it. In Bud's words, quote, And what happened after he bought those shells for me? He took the shells and shot his girlfriend three times. End quote. He has to be feeling a lot of guilt about being the one to sell those shells and that gun. Yeah. Even though he obviously had no way of knowing, you can see in Bud's face and hear in his voice how much it affected and still, at the time of the broadcast, affected him. But then again, someone has sold every gun that's been used to kill someone. That's true. Any gun could be the one that kills someone. On September 22nd, 1970, John Burns showed up at the house and saw an unfamiliar car in the driveway and assumed it was a new boyfriend, as if it was any of his business. It was not. No. In reality, the car belonged to her nephew, who has one of the greatest names I've ever heard, Bobby Potts. Bobby Potts. So endearing. I named a cat at the animal shelter, Bobby Potts. It's a very cute name. Bobby was visiting Eleanor, as was Melody and Melody's four-year-old daughter, and Eleanor's nine-year-old daughter was also home. Eleanor had gone outside to check on some chicks that had just hatched, when suddenly Melody's daughter ran inside and told Melody, John's here. Melody was at the window and saw him loading the gun and yelling. Like a badass, she ran for their gun, but it was too late. She heard three gunshots. Bobby ran outside to find Eleanor dead. She had been shot in the face. It's so tragic. After all of these trash men, she was still trying to go on, live her life, doing her best, probably still working on that chicken farm. And then this man just comes along and just tears her down and takes her life. Yeah. And it was possessiveness. It was a feeling of ownership and deservedness. It was not love. It was all jealousy. Yeah. Just, yeah. Burns hid in a barn across the road, just a hundred yards away, for ten days. After finding the hideout, law enforcement believed he'd actually been in the barn before the murder as well, stalking Eleanor because her house was visible from the window. You'd think they might have checked that out a little sooner than 10 days. I wonder who owned the barn. Well, it was actually the owner of the barn who went in there and was uh, moving some hay around and discovered some, like, food trash inside the hay. And so he's the one who kind of discovered the scenario and called the police. How creepy would that be to just oh. walk into, like, an, an unused part of your property and clearly somebody's been staying there. Yeah. It's like the stories of someone hiding in the attic or no, something. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Once inside the barn, law enforcement found that Burns had written a confession on the boards. It said, quote, The little red schoolhouse across the way or road. I shot and killed the women I loved. Eleanor Farver. I was being made a fool. End quote. This freaking asshat made himself the fool. Mm -hmm. Clearly just put on display what a piece of shit he was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
who's the fool? The person who's got all this jealousy and insecurity that makes him murder a beautiful person. Yeah. It's outrageous. And we haven't even gotten into the full story yet. Oi. After the murder, Burns snuck into Anna's house at least twice and wrote her a note that said, quote, If I get work, I will send you money. I was a bad husband, and you were a good woman. Bye-bye now. A bye-bye now. GTFO. In the immortal words of Beyonce, middle fingers up, put him hands high, wave him in his face, tell him boy-bye. <laughs> <laughs> And that was the last anyone knew of John Burns. At the time of the broadcast, Detective Bill had been searching for about 12 years. Does Bill have a last name? Eskridge. <laughs> I just like to call him Detective Bill. I'm okay. not sure why. All I right. just felt like it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Bill Eskridge had actually attended the high school that Burns worked at as a custodian while Burns worked there. So he had this personal curiosity about what happened to him. He searched military, dental, and death records in every state in the U.S. and Canada, as well as the Bureau of Vital Statistics, but found no one matching John Burns. Anna Burns, me, Murray, spoke with Detective Bill and all she knew is that Burns had told her he'd been married and had kids in Altoona, Pennsylvania. Anna Murray spoke with Detective Bill, and all she knew was that Burns had told her he'd been married and had kids in Altoona, Pennsylvania. However, on his marriage license, he'd listed his birthplace as Cheyenne, Wyoming. He also had listed at least four different birth dates on different documents. Anna moved away into a convalescent home, refusing to speak about the case ever again. Another thing that's wild about them being married for 20 years is they never took a picture. Like, I, th I think maybe one of the pictures in the special might have been the two of them. Yeah. But... I'm not sure. Just... Yeah, that's true. I hadn't even thought about that. Because in the special, they reveal that there were only two photos in existence of John Burns. Because, as Detective Bill discovered, as the high school custodian, he was supposed to have his picture taken on picture day, and he would be featured in the yearbook. But every single picture day, he had called in sick to avoid being photographed. And this made Detective Bill think that he was trying to hide a history of serious crimes. Yeah, watching this uh, segment about him, it is very clear that he is hiding something. Mm -hmm. So based on the two photos that existed, the police came up with probably the worst police composite sketch ever, which I will try to find, but I only saw it in the original special number two when that was available on YouTube, and I didn't see it featured in the one with... No, it wasn't in the... Dennis Farina? No. So... If I can find it, I'll they, share it. It was they were awful. probably embarrassed. <laughs> it was really bad. Um, but Detective Bill thought that Burns was still alive, still around, maybe even watching this TV show. 
The day after Unsolved Mysteries aired, there were a dozen messages on Detective Bill's machine, six from people in Altoona, Pennsylvania, telling him to look for Stephen Vance. But that wouldn't even turn out to be his real name. Wilford P. Cashman was born January 10th, 1912, in Altoona, Blair County, Pennsylvania. This guy was not trying to pull a Robert Weeks. With the same name? No. Nope. <laughs> he was not concerned about remembering what his new name was. <laughs> Cashman was married, had four children, and worked for the railroad as well as Sunday school superintendent. His sister remembers in a Pittsburgh Press article how in the 30s and 40s he would preach gospel to fellow railroad shop workers. Until... He ran off with a younger woman, and the Pittsburgh Press reported that he'd been arrested for passing bad checks. But I found another newspaper clipping from the Altoona Tribune in 1943 that I want to read. Can we just pause a moment to, again, question how these terrible men wind up getting so many people to be in a relationship with them? No shame and no guilt, I guess? I just... I I can't imagine how they're so good at hiding their true garbage status. Maybe they're just really good at manipulating good people. So this article, again, is from the Altoona Tribune, published in 1943. Cashman held on nine charges. That's my little newspaper reporter voice. I'm done now. <laughs> Wilfred Paul Cashman, Altoona, RD2, Box 137, is now arresting in Blair County Jail, with so many criminal charges against him that if he was convicted on all counts and got the maximum penalty on each to run consecutively, he would be an old man before he ever got out. So he's a total hypocrite, master manipulator piece of garbage. That's only one paragraph of this article, Shani. <laughs> 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 you just wait. You just wait. It gets better. And by better, I mean worse. Among the charges are burglary, prostitution of a youthful female, adultery, oh, rape, issuing fraudulent checks, conspiracy, and three charges of forgery. You were not kidding. <laughs> no. <sighs> and I didn't find this information anywhere else. The article continues. After a hearing yesterday before Alderman William C. Stevens of the 11th Ward, Cashman was held for court without bail. His girl companion, only 16, was also held for court without bail. Allow me a moment to sit with my rage. Uh-huh. Okay. As if that wasn't enough, he has yet to face an OPA charge of illegal possession of ration books and also other charges of mutilation of government property. I think the female companion is worse than the OPA charge of illegal possession of ration books, um, but that's just me. Yeah. Then, too, the Tyrone Draft Board is anxious to know why he didn't report on October 21st. Cashman, only 31, is the father of five children. Some time ago, he and a young Juniata girl became friendly, and they, the police charge, went to Detroit and lived together for seven months. Then they came back to Altoona and further lived together. Ooh, scandalous. They lived together. 
can we please talk about the ages of these girls? Mm -hmm. Some time ago, the office of the Altoona Products Company was entered and some blank checks were stolen. Afterward, the police charge, these were filled out and signed with names, not Cashman's, and floated around Altoona among various business stores and business places. The checks were no good. <laughs> the checks were no good. <laughs> ah. In addition, the couple got hold of some OPA food ration books and used the names of Louis E. Fusco, legal representatives of the OPA, are watching developments in this case and may file government criminal charges. Well, that article is a treasure. Yes. A treasure trove of the numerous crimes. This dude did everything. Mm-hmm. A little bit of everything. Yeah. So you have to, again, kind of wonder what he got up to when he was married to Anna. What kind of bullshit was she putting up with? Mm. For these crimes, Cashman was sent to Rockview Prison on a 14-year sentence. But on August 15th, 1947, in the middle of the afternoon, in broad daylight, he climbed a stockade fence and escaped. Good grief. That same year, he strolled into South Lyon with the name John Burns. After Eleanor's murder, Cashman returned to Altoona and moved in with his father. He kept in touch with several family members, including his first wife and children. None of them knew he was wanted for murder. I, I can't believe that, that he didn't have a mugshot from the first time he was arrested. Like, I, I just kind of would have expected them to always be a thing as long as photography existed. Well, you have to remember, the murder happened in the 70s, so even if there was a mugshot from the 40s, there wouldn't necessarily be a quick way to access or reference a lot of different mugshots. I just, I mean, they, they had this, uh, suggest, this possibility, they had the possibility that he may have come from Altoona, Pennsylvania, amongst other mm -hmm. places. They could have looked through records for those places. Mm -hmm. They could have used one of those two existing photos to compare. Yeah. It's just, it's so frustrating that just if this little bit of uh, technology or procedure had existed at the time, mm -hmm. then maybe he could have been identified sooner. Yeah. There's also the question of even if his family didn't know he was wanted for murder, shouldn't they have known he had escaped from prison? Yeah, did he just walk in like, hey, pops, I got out of jail? Because you'd think that the news when he escaped prison would have gotten back to his family. Yeah. And then he'd have been gone for over 20 years, and then all of a sudden he's strolling back into town, and no one goes, hey, prison, did you let this guy go? Did you lose somebody? After Cashman's father's death, he moved to a remote hillside cabin in the woods and went by the name Stephen Vance. He worked odd jobs for food or items while living in hiding. He was a Mennonite, but he didn't attend services. He kept to himself and said he would paint the church when no one was there as his service. He was described by a daughter-in-law as knowing the Bible inside and out, and he had multiple Bibles in his home. And I don't care how many Bibles he had in his home because he was garbage. Mm -hmm. A garbage hypocrite. Yeah. That's the, the best. 
He was a hypocrite for sure. <laughs> um, according to the Pittsburgh Press, his favorite biblical figure was Saul of Tarsus, who was a brutal tax collector who was struck by the power of God and transformed. So you can imagine how perhaps he wanted to see himself as Saul of Tarsus, as having done a terrible thing and allow himself absolution, which just isn't how it works. No, I don't care how many churches he painted. There's never any way to make up for him taking Eleanor away from her family. No, you have to, you'd have to make some sort of reparation to her family and the people hurt to have any chance of forgiveness. In 1984, Cashman had a heart attack and possibly also a stroke. And he tried to avoid going to the hospital, but eventually had to relent. But still, his health was left quite poor. On May 30th, 1987, after receiving all those tips from the good people of Altoona, Pennsylvania, police clambered through the woods with automatic rifles to surround his cabin. Detective Bill Eskridge was there, and he knocked on the door and asked him if he remembered a September 22nd, 1970 murder, and Cashman said he did. He followed that confirmation up with, quote, I'm old, sick, and just want to get this over with, end quote. And he gets to get it over with on his time, mm -hmm. on his terms. In the car on the way to the station, he asked about Anna and was informed by Bill that she had died the week previously. Wow, that timing is pretty wild. Mm -hmm. I wonder what she would have said if she was told that she, there was a possibility of seeing him again. I mean, if she was told he'd been captured and was going to go on trial for the murder, she'd probably say good riddance. <laughs> Cashman claimed that on the day of the murder, Eleanor had grabbed the gun and it went off. Excuse me. No. Three gunshots. Yes. That's exactly what Detective Bill said. But still, Cashman maintained that he truly loved Eleanor. No. No, that's not love. No. You don't kill something that you love. You let it go. <laughs> you let it go have its chicken ranch mm -hmm. and be mm -hmm. happy with its six children. Yeah, and grandchildren and extended family. As he looked at the frail, sick old man in the back seat, Detective Bill felt a sense of remorse catching him because he didn't appear as the vicious armed killer he'd imagined. Then he opened up the bulging case file on Eleanor's murder and looked at the photo of Eleanor after being shot. And that put it back into perspective. He didn't just catch Eleanor's murder. He also caught a pedophile. Yeah. To put it frankly. I would say a possible small positive is that it seems that by living the rest of his life in isolation... It doesn't seem like Cashman ever did hurt another woman. So that's, that's, a, that's good. Yeah. If, if that's as true as I think it is, it's good. If it's the best we can hope for, then at least it's something. Yeah. Cashman was convicted of Eleanor's murder on December 3rd, 1987. But on January 7th, 1988, just before he was scheduled to be sentenced, he died of a heart attack. He was 79 years old. 
This was actually the first case ever solved by a tip from a viewer of Unsolved Mysteries. Oh, wow. Yeah. So kind of a standout segment in that Yeah, way. that's super. Yeah. <laughs> Wilford Cashman lived long enough to be convicted for his crimes. Eleanor Farver was buried in an unmarked grave at age 46 and was survived by children, grandchildren, nieces, and cousins who loved her. I, I wonder why it was unmarked. Yeah. I don't know if it was a money thing. Yeah. If they couldn't afford to get a, a gravestone or what. That would be very tragic. Yeah. Or me. I, I might be kind of out there, but maybe it was an attempt to hide her. If they don't know where he is and they want to protect her remains, maybe. More likely it's a money thing. Yeah. <laughs> it would just be nice if she could get a marked grave. Mm-hmm. I just hope that what resolution there was brought her family some peace. That is the sad story of Eleanor Farver. Thank you for joining us. You can connect with us on Instagram, where I will link sources and share photos from the story. We're at you solved a mystery, all one word. And you can also email us with thoughts or feedback at you solved a mystery at gmail.com. And if you're enjoying what you're hearing, if you want to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, that would be so nice. That would be super swell. As always, I'm Athena. And I'm Chandra. Join us next time to hear another story about how you solved a mystery.